Welcome to Next in Nonprofits. I'm Steve Boland, and I am very pleased to be joined by two of my good friends from the Minnesota Council of Nonprofits. John Pratt is the executive director here. Kari Anastad is the uh, director of advancement and the co-director of grant advisors. So we're going to talk about that particular role in just a moment. But first, John, Kari, thank you both so much for taking the time. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Um, I asked for some of your time again, and I've had both of you on this podcast before, so thank you both for uh, coming back, about donor-advised funds, but more specifically about a blog post that kind of prompted this framework conversation around, I think, how people maybe misperceive, um, you know, what what this is in relation to a traditional foundation or what that might look like. Um, so, John, I want to talk a little bit about the the broader context of a working group that you've been working with mm-hmm. here and, and Kari, your role there. But could, could we begin, Kari, by just talking a little bit about um, the decision to write that particular blog post uh, in the context of is a donor-advised fund something a grant writer you know, works within the same way it works with other tools. Sure. Yeah. So um, the Minnesota Council of Nonprofits uh, has a mission to inform and connect the nonprofit sector. And one of the ways that we do that is by keeping our finger on the pulse of things that are unfolding that uh, have are of concern and, or interest to our members and nonprofit organizations throughout the state. So when we were hearing that donor advised funds were getting quite a lot of attention, um, our ears kind of perked up. And that was part of the reason that inspired the Donor Advised Fund Working Group that we can talk about in a second. But um, Grant Advisor, which is an initiative of the Minnesota Council of Nonprofits in partnership with two uh, nonprofit organizations in California, has a kind of overlapping mission, which is to make sure that grant writers have the information and resources that they need to achieve their own goals for their nonprofit organizations. And then also to increase public understanding, really, of what grant writers do. So... You know, you mash all those things together. We were seeing that grant writers were um, getting perhaps uh, a little bit of false hope about what donor advised funds could be, and so saw a need to kind of clarify um, what are donor advised funds, uh, what is and isn't knowledgeable or kind of accessible to the public in terms of information, um, what are the processes by which you can access grant funding from them. So. We used our blog platform on Grant Advisor to write and publish a piece that clarified some of the, the terms that get interchanged and hope to give some clarification for that audience. Good. So that context, I think, is extremely important for a lot of us. But I love the title of this particular piece because it um, really makes it clear the mechanism of donor-advised funds isn't something that by nature has an open application process. And I think that talking about when is this the right thing for us to talk with our boards, partners, um, friends about as a, a way of accessing dollars that are increasingly going this direction. And I think that even in that piece, you talk a little bit about the growth of donor-advised funds as a tool over the last you know, several years, but certainly snowballing in the last 10, right? Yes. So it, um, the National Philanthropic Trust issues an annual report every year to report on trends that are unfolding with this particular form of charitable giving. And in 2017, saw that kind of collectively, uh, nationwide, donor-advised funds had surpassed $110 billion of assets. And uh, NPT has a great kind of graph that shows the growth of donor-advised funds as a relative percentage of individual giving. And um, last year, it was up to 10%. And so you see just this rapid growth of interest in folks wanting to use this as a vehicle um, for their own charitable giving. And some of them are opting to go this way as opposed to a more traditional private foundation, Mm -hmm. which I think is 
Another um, potential interest or concern of grant writers who have um, relied on private foundation funding as a source of reliable revenue for their organizations. Or at least a more transparent one. And I think that's one of the concerns that we see in the sector is that people are um, thinking of, you know, how we got access to what private foundations or, or other givers would be interested in supporting. And, and having that conversation of they've supported these types of charities in the past, uh, we think that there's an alignment in our, our um, ethos here. We really want to talk with them. Uh, so we're going to look for an introduction as opposed to this foundation over here has got a clear mission statement that just doesn't align with ours. We, we're not going to be successful. Let's not bother them. It was easier to, in that transparency because of the reporting of where some of those grants were going. But this mechanism doesn't really work that way where we can see this donor gave or asked for that money to be given. And here's one of those questions about a donor advised fund directed the money to be given um, somewhere else. Uh, so, uh, John, you have some thoughts about that idea of, you know, advised or give or directed versus, you know, they gave because did they really give to the charity or did they give to the foundation who's in turn making a directed gift? Right. And it might be worth it to take a, a little bit of a step back and say, mm -hmm. what is a donor advised yeah. fund? How do, How is it structured? And what are the legal constraints that surround it? And also, how does it compare to private foundations? Yeah. So the donor advised funds are funds held inside public charities. So the public charity could be like a community foundation, Minneapolis Foundation, St. Paul Foundation, or it could be there's some commercial sponsors, uh, and these are some of the largest ones now, uh, Char uh, Vanguard, uh, Schwab, Goldman Sachs, uh, and they hold funds. So you as an individual can make a contribution to a public charity. It's an irrevocable gift. So once you decide to transfer the funds to this charity, you can't get it back. You get an immediate tax deduction, uh, and then the organization can hold it, uh, and then it's called donor-advised as opposed to donor-directed because, in theory, uh, it's a completed gift. Uh, you have no legal control over it. Uh, but you could give some advice to the sponsor who's holding this fund, which could be Minneapolis Foundation or it could be Vanguard. Uh, and then they may, if it's a proper charity that you're designating it to go to, they can make that transfer. Uh, there's no payout requirement, unlike with private foundations. So uh, this is there's sort of several key issues around DAFs of how much of the money is actually getting to work in working charities. Uh, and we can talk more about you know, sort of those uh, sort of has the regulatory structure kept up with this amazing growth in the total dollars in this field. Right. And the transparency, again, is that that piece of it is how much has been distributed through these funds? And do we know that? Is that public information? Yes. Okay. So... The public charities have to report each year to the IRS on IRS Form 990. Mm -hmm. There's a part of IRS Form 990, which is Schedule D, uh, and it has six lines. Uh, and so this is called Supplemental Financial Statements. So organizations maintaining donor-advised funds or similar funds have to report the total number of funds they have at the end of the year. Uh, the value of contributions going in, the amount of contributions that have come out, and then the total value at the end of the year. Okay. 
So there's a way to aggregate that information, but that would be difficult to do across all of these folks. Although, as you point out, Fidelity and, the, and their like are large players. So if you get some of those big ones together, you can get a sense of what's happening in these donor-advised funds on a, on a grander scale, even though there's many smaller ones that are also happening. Yes, you get a, a sense of what's the total activity. Yeah. Uh, there are some things you don't know, like who did it go to? Right. What were the purposes? What was the geographic distribution uh, of those contributions? Uh, so the it's not that the, they do list contributions, but they're amalgamated with all the other contributions that may be going through through that entity. Okay. So good to recognize that. Now, legally, um, a uh, fund is not required to follow the advice of the donor that gave that in. Practically, of course, if they wish to see subsequent donations from either that donor or perhaps others, they're almost certainly going to, as long as it is an eligible charity and, and not something that is completely mission opposite to the um, organization's goals. Yes. Uh, so I don't know that I've heard of anybody go, wow, I put money into this donor advised fund and then I asked for a gift to be made and they said, no way. And I'm like, oh, well, I does do you know of instances of that actually happening anywhere, even though legally it could? Uh, you know, there were a couple of cases for sort of religious sponsors of DAFs oh, okay. where they felt that uh, it went against their teachings. Uh, but there are two questions that get at this on the IRS Form 990. So they're yes-no questions. Oh, okay. So the first one is, did the organization inform all donors and donor advisors in writing that the assets held in donor-advised funds are the organization's property uh, and not for the benefit of the donor or donor advisor or any other purpose? Right. So you can't benefit yourself using these donor-advised right. funds, and you have to give up exclusive control. The charity still controls it. Right. Again, legally, now, practically. There's kind of a wink that goes on. <clears throat> right. And so uh, anyone that's actually not interested in making a charitable gift, they wouldn't be using these mechanisms. They're, you know, so it's there. I don't think that anybody that's concerned about what's happening in donor advice funds feels like the end use of the money isn't eventually going to be charitable. Mm -hmm. It's a question of when will it be charitable? How do we talk about transparency in exchange for that charitable gift so that there's some accountability to that with the public and all those things that become less easy in this particular mechanism uh, than they would be if they had just made a gift to a charity because if that was the case, then the charity, if it was more than $5,000, would be reporting it on their IRS forms or if they had established their own foundation, they'd have their own reporting requirements. But um, those things are, are a little different. So I think one of the things that's challenging for many organizations out there, though, and this kind of Kari gets back to the – now that we've got a little bit more context, that what you um, uh, put together in the blog post of – how do charities think to themselves about this money? Because we, we can't, I, I don't think, reasonably set the expectation that we just get to apply for it based on criteria. That's not how this works. Right. And so the question of, yeah, how, do, how should nonprofit organizations be thinking about this money? There's this tension between a recognition that these are dollars that have been given a tax consideration with the intention that they are going to eventually benefit the public. So um, that's exciting news. It's like learning um, if that you have a donor that's supporting your organization in, in terms of a direct donation to your organization, and then you've learned that they also have a donor-advised fund, that that could be a really great opportunity for you, that that's good news. The bad news is that 
um, as you've named Steve a couple of times now, that because of a lack of transparency about information of who specifically holds donor advised fund accounts at different sponsors, uh, where the money is going and at what amount back into the community, because a lot of that information isn't publicly known, it makes it really difficult for nonprofit organizations, particularly grant writers uh, and fundraisers, to build meaningful work plans around how to access those funds. Right. And build a relationship with people that may not know yet that there's a, a, a thing here. And, and I think one of the things that's challenging to, to me about this in particular is that if, if a donor knows, I want to give to my alma mater, and that's where I want my charitable gift to go, you know, why not just give to your alma mater? Why, why go through the interim step of working with a donor advised fund? If that donor wants to give to a few different places and be flexible about um, where those gifts might go in the future, that they're going to take that big tax advantage by making the one big gift right now or several larger gifts over a period, but then to continue to be involved in the conversation about is there going to be a subsequent gift to that particular charity? Will I go to a different one? Um, those things you know, aren't committed the second the dollar is given, whereas if you give it to your alma mater, it's gone. They've you know, got the money or whatever. I mean, there's all sorts of other things that, that mechanisms that that exist for those kinds of things. There's um, charitable trusts, revocable, and both are revocable. I mean, there's there's other mechanisms that people could use to give to individual charities over time. But this one, I think, with the idea of, in theory, you haven't given this end gift to a, a end charity. It's gone to this interim step. Uh, that there could be some potential to say, let's build a relationship with that person, see if they value what we do. But we can't build a relationship with somebody we don't have any idea is engaged in this work. Correct. So how, to the second part of the, the blog post title, you know, donor advisements aren't for grant writers, but they could be. Um, how do we help start in this world of if there's going to be billions and billions of more dollars going into these funds in the coming years, and it sure looks that way, how, how do we as nonprofits do what we can do to understand how we can start building relationships with people that are working in that space? So I think that can be uh, can be answered by two different kind of time frames. The one is the current one as is. So there are some tips and tricks around how to access donor advised funds um, as the current system exists. Uh, some folks recommend treating it more like individual giving. So better understanding who is in your existing donor pool, asking questions at kind of donor site meetings. Do you have a donor advised fund account? Have you considered giving charitably to us through it? Uh, so more kind of organically just integrating that to existing conversations that you have, which works well for nonprofit organizations who have an existing base of donors. And if you don't, it gets even harder to initiate those conversations. Another way of framing the can be um, is sort of a call to potential legislative reform. So yeah. what are the barriers or opportunities that exist in the way that it's currently designed and how could we potentially work together to push for some reforms that could make it um, kind of more easier, accessible, with more transparency for nonprofit organizations? So towards that end, John, and as you've been having, you well, I don't know that we've talked yet about the working group. So maybe we should set that context of um, the Minnesota Council of Nonprofits realizes there's a lot of people that have questions, thoughts, concerns. Um, you've pulled some people together to have those conversations. Can you talk a little bit more about the, the genesis of that work and what mm -hmm. they're doing? I would say it was a response to the major growth in total assets in DAFs. Uh, so this has triggered a lot of public uh, interest uh, and curiosity. And 
a desire for more information. So the working group had three meetings. Uh, it was designed as a sort of a public conversation from ranging from wealth advisors to the commercial DAFs to community foundations to nonprofit fundraisers. So getting them in the room together and then having a variety of speakers to educate, help educate the field about what's happening with DAFs to elevate sort of potential reforms or options for different ways to regulate them, uh, and to identify educational opportunities aimed at nonprofits. So, oh, are there some things that they should know? For example, you could add to uh, your contribution fund, not just you can give by cash or credit card, but you can make a transfer from a DAF and just planting that idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was, uh, we're writing up kind of the working papers from that and having oh. more information. Uh, but I think uh, it generated some conversation, including outside Minnesota as well. So the uh, it was really a response to this growth. Uh, and some of the other responses nationally are sort of more conversation and issue papers being written. Legislation has been introduced in California uh, to increase the information available about what actually is happening inside these DAF accounts. Uh, so we, we hear a bit about payout uh, and how much money is moving, uh, but that's not doesn't really tell you the whole picture. It tells you the aggregate. Right. Um, not, I mean, for example, there are accounts where there's nothing coming out of the account. Uh, one of the changes that's being adopted by many of the community foundations and the commercial DAFs is to have orphan policies. Hmm. So this this problem of what if, uh, Steve, you create a DAF uh, and then you go on to your maker, mm-hmm. uh, what happens to that money? Uh, and so for some of the DAF sponsors, they say, if you haven't made any designation in four years, that money will revert to the sponsor, mm-hmm. sort of the sponsoring organization, which could be Fidelity or it could be the Minneapolis Foundation or University of Indiana. Uh, and then they will make sure that it gets into a charitable activity. Well, that's an interesting question for some of these folks where there's a, um, a money management, more profit motive behind this thing. I, I understand, you know, Fidelity created its charitable foundation to do this work, that it's not the same thing as Fidelity. But the purpose of Fidelity's parent is to make money off of money. I mean, that's what they do. So the idea of how do they become a steward of orphaned funds? How do they become a grant maker? I mean, um, th- that's not something that I've seen an application like here's how you apply. Maybe it's just new and maybe there's going to be more ways that they will make that more transparent of what are the guidelines for that money. Now, if it's at a community foundation, I think that's easier because there generally are grant making um, mechanisms that are in place with guidelines, with you know community input from boards of directors and all that stuff. But these other institutions that have gotten into this more recently that um, were created for the purpose essentially of managing DAFs, um, that I don't have the sense of. Do you get a sense of – is there a grant-making policy at these things if they become orphaned? Yes. Uh, and, and so they are – so Fidelity, the sort of the parent organization, uh, is able to set up a nonprofit. So they mm-hmm. created this new entity, Fidelity Charitable. Uh, Fidelity Charitable was recognized by the IRS as a charitable organization, as a 501c3, and has its own board of directors. Uh, That board has the same fiduciary duties as any charitable organization and has the authority then 
to make expenditures using charitable funds. Uh, you know, in some ways, they could they have control over the entire right. amount. Legally, they right. immediately have access to all that. But yeah. practically, again, they would probably wait for funds to be orphaned before talking about yes. doing something that didn't have um, a donor advice versus donor directed, which I appreciate the clarification on that earlier. So if, if a donor fails to do this, is this orphan policy already something that's in place? This is something that we need to look towards a legislative structure around so that we know what that looks like for everybody. Yeah, I'd say it varies. It's on the onus of the sponsoring institution to okay. have that type of a policy in place. So it could be an orphan policy. Some folks call it inactive funds policy. Sure. So even if the donor or advisor is still living, um, some organizations will have a policy in place where they will contact the donor and upon three contacts kind of imply that the funds will now be rendered to the larger sponsoring institution for um Grant making. Right. Well, and again, to be clear, they've always been in the property of the larger sponsoring institution, but they'll now be given out in that larger pool without further input from the original donor. So that's okay. Um, good to know that if, if that kind of thing starts to happen more over time as this grows, those institutions could become some of the largest grant makers that we see given the corpus that they're holding on to. I mean, that's a lot of money that if eventually some of it just isn't moved for whatever reason – um, you know, billions and billions of dollars that are in these funds, uh, it, it, does that eventually then become subject to a 5% payout? Or if once it's in a donor advice fund, there is never a requirement to pay that money out? Well, under current law. Right. Uh, and okay. the, you know, the, the real basis of current law is mostly in the 1969 Tax Reform Act. Which, so it's interesting. We're at the 50th anniversary uh, of the major legislation that sort of created this sort of bifurcation of public charities versus private foundations mm. and established a lot of requirements on private foundations. And so restrictions against self-dealing, yeah. uh, a requirement to report what their investments are, where their money uh, is going to, uh, all their expenses, and then certain limitations on how they can spend, including a ban on them earmarking money for lobbying, a uh, complete ban on uh, political activity by those entities, uh, and so the and then public charities have a lot more degrees of freedom mm -hmm. than private foundations. Private foundations also pay a one to two percent excise tax each year on their investment earnings, and then have the five percent payout requirement. Public charities have no payout requirement, so those DAFs, uh, in theory, you know, could remain there uh, in perpetuity. And those organizations are charitable, as you mentioned, that are holding them, but they are presumably also retaining some kind of fees for managing the money uh, in addition to whatever is being paid out. I mean, that's just the usual relationship. So I'm guessing that's true. Yeah. So there can be expenses charged right. against these accounts, which may also be in the 1% to 2% range. Yeah. And that would be a, a normal thing we've seen for many years. But in this particular case, the, that question mark of can they just keep growing that way if they never make a disbursement and they keep managing 1% to 2% in fees every year, the incentive to give back out is all about their charitable mission and not necessarily uh, about a legislative requirement to give it back out. I mean, that's a... You'd like to think that it would all just be kind of managed right, but this is new water for some of us to see this kind of money in these spaces. Yeah. So if, if the total assets in 2019 are approaching $150 billion, mm -hmm. the and it's, uh, say it's 1%, so 
So one and a half billion could be generated in fees right. each year. I, I would say the DAF sponsors would say, no, that's not true. We don't have a financial incentive to hold on to the money. We encourage people to make contributions. That's the sponsors would say that that sort of disincentive to make money does not exist. Okay. Well, let's. I hope that that's true. I, I'm I'm learning and wanting to you know make sure that we're not um, rushing to judgment on something that hasn't been around in this scale. Now, donor advised funds have been around for a while, but we're just we're really seeing it emerge because of the amount of money that's going into them. I don't remember when this was originally kicked off, but it's not two years. It's more, right? 1930s, right? The donor advised funds have been around that long. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, in some form, oh, okay. uh, often at community foundations. The commercial uh, DAFs are what they wouldn't say they're commercial DAFs. They prefer a term of national, national, national sponsors. National okay. sponsors. But uh, coming back to your question about sort of payout pay or spend down, mm -hmm. uh, this is one of the areas of interest of, okay, so currently there's no requirement. Right. Should there be a re requirement? And can you do that retroactively, or is that something that would be for contributions moving forward? I mean, if we were to propose legislation saying those funds need to start some kind of payout close to the 5% that is expected in the private foundation world or whatever, money that's already been contributed under a different law presumably would just no, sit there? They've no, they've already gotten their tax deduction. Okay. So this would be laws governing charitable organizations that okay. are currently tax exempt. So you could say current C3s with DAFs uh, and part of the, I would say, you know, some of the interest and there are a number of law professors, uh, Roger Colinvo at Catholic University and Ray Madoff at Boston College are talking about sort of a five to seven year reasonable payout. So not a percentage, oh, okay. uh, but a spend down, uh, basically a time limit. So you'd have to keep track of probably year by year of the funds that you're holding. If it's that aggressive, though, I mean, that, that original contribution goes away. If you're not making subsequent contributions, that fund expires relatively soon. I mean, five to seven years isn't that long. Yes. And I think you would keep track of year by year. Right. So you could keep contributing to your DAF. It just would have to keep paying out every year. So you couldn't have an inactive DAF. Okay. Under that scheme. But the idea here that if you are looking to have something that is making gifts more in perpetuity, you should be creating a private foundation and looking at how it's going to continue to earn money and all the rest of it. And rather than this tool is to get money into the charitable purposes that you're interested in supporting, um, let, let me ask a little bit about who, who chooses the DAF option and why they might choose that as opposed to a direct gift to a charity which, of course, as somebody who works with charities, we would love to just have the money right from the donor and thank them and have them involved. That would be great. But but there are reasons that some people choose this mechanism over others. What, what's the the, the, the the understanding of why a donor may want to go this route? I mean, other than the, the getting in is pretty cheap, right? It's like $5,000 or something kind of affordable. Could be a minimum amount. Yeah. Yeah, and that's usually a national sponsor would have a lower kind of opening um, threshold as opposed to community foundations tend to have a higher um, bar, bar to entry. Uh, so donors love donor advised funds for a number of reasons, um, one of which they are a flexible tool that allows for the contribution of complex assets. So oh, yeah. um, kind of financial advisors would say that 
DAFs are often used at a, a major liquidity moment with a, a sale of a business or a real estate uh, where folks are looking to kind of maximize a number of different uh, things that are happening, co-occurring all at the same time um, as a way to kind of streamline a number of different processes, but then also um, set themselves up for continued kind of a legacy, establishing a legacy of charitable giving. So uh, that makes sense to me, the, that not every uh, charity you might want to support would be interested in trying to go through all the hoops of how do I give you a gift of appreciated stock. That's not hard, actually. But, you know, um, prop real estate, for example, which might be harder to liquidate or manage or whatever. Um, but I think that there's got to be some element about retaining some level of communication or control over that money as opposed to, you know, just giving it out right away to your local charity and then hoping that they continue to do good work with it. If you have this advisement mechanism, you can continue to say every year, I'm, I'm still with them. I still believe in what's going on. I want to continue to support them or, you know, I'm not loving that direction. I want to give somewhere else instead. So I'm going to make a shift in my advisement to the um, sponsor and ask that they go somewhere else. Is, is that level of flexibility part of it? But I and also ask you both about the idea of that transparency, that those decisions don't necessarily mean you're going to get phone calls from everybody in the community going, oh, I see you're now giving over here and you, we should talk with you. Are, are they trying? Are some of them interested in that level of privacy? privacy and protection? Yes, it, it can be used that way. And one of the one of the concerns is dark money, right. too, is uh, who are the donors who are funding different activities? And probably one of the most famous cases uh, was involving Matthew Whitaker, who was U.S. Attorney General for three months at the beginning of this year. Uh, but he had worked for kind of a, a think tank uh, that was funded by conservative groups. Uh, so he uh, received money from a conservative donor-advised fund called Donors Trust. So it's a pass-through vehicle that allows donors to remain anonymous. From its creation in 2014 through 2018, uh, FACT reported contributions of $3.5 million. Uh, it did not disclose its donors. Uh, the lar group's largest single expense was Whitaker's salary. So he collected $1.2 million, uh, and the organization had the special focus on the Hillary Clinton email controversy. Mm. Uh, despite claiming to be nonpartisan, the organization called for ethics investigations into or filed complaints on more than 40 different Democratic politicians. Uh, fact was described as using the legal system as a political weapon uh, and described by a GOP operative as a chop shop of fake ethics complaints. Hmm. So, but then the question is, well, who is funding it? Uh, and was this a mechanism for a single donor to put the money through a public charity and then give a nonprofit, which has a sing essentially a single donor, public charity status? So kind of avoiding some of the other IRS rules yeah. about disclosures and, you know, giving them the most favored tax status as a public charity uh, by virtue of using a DAF as the pass-through. Right. And for so, those of us that have struggled through the 990, that public support test is always there. We always have to right. answer that question of do we have broad public support or are we really being supported by a limited group or person, in which case we need to refile as a different type of organization. 
Right. So the and the idea that charities, you know, are are supposed to be sort of public benefit, not just a single person's axe right. to grind. Uh, right. Well, that's an interesting segment of this that I hadn't thought about as much. I think what a lot of us are thinking when we're thinking we really want to talk to these particular donors and we don't get to know who they are, so we can't try to engage in a conversation, that some of that might be very intentional from the donor. I don't want to have to sort through all this. This is not something that I want to have conversations about. So therefore, I'm going to give to these people. They'll have the conversations, but I will personally just say these are the two or three things or five or ten or however many that the donor wants to give to um, that I want to advise um, gifts be made to. But I don't ever have to talk to those people. I don't ever have to talk to other people that might have a different way of accomplishing that same mission. That's, I think, where it's a little challenging for us in the nonprofits to go, well, of course we want people to give philanthropically. Absolutely, they should give to things that matter to them. Of course they do. But we sort of feel like, oh, my goodness, but if you're putting yourself in this black box and nobody can ever approach you about a different idea, how do you learn or know? Or, and is it okay to just say, I don't want to learn anything more. I want to make my one decision and I don't want to have to think about it anymore. I, I don't, has that been part of the conversation, that working group with, you know, you've got wealth managers, you've got people from DAFs. I mean, they must have heard some of those kinds of thoughts. Yeah, and I would say this is, you know, sort of there is that dynamic tension between transparency and privacy. Yeah. Uh, and, and so donors to charitable organizations can be anonymous. Um, of course, we know that there's lots of nonprofits that have donor lists Mm-hmm. in their annual reports. Right. So. Some of those people want to encourage more contribution and excitement to say, yeah, I gave to this, and I think you should too, and and I want to be public about that. And I think that that's great when people choose it. But for those that choose not to, um, that's a really interesting question of they could make a direct donation to a charity and be anonymous about it, that that's not something that has to be published in a 990 at the mm-hmm. end of the day. So that's always an option that's out there. I appreciate you kind of bringing that back up because it doesn't happen as much. I, I don't see large-scale anonymous gifts as much. I, I do see gifts where people would like to be recognized for their contribution. They want to be talked about as somebody who is supporting the work. Um, but if they choose to be anonymous, it, it, then it does seem to me like it goes behind some other wall. It, it comes from a fidelity or it comes from somewhere else, and that gives them that anonymized layer, but they don't need it. Right. In fact, a lot of the donor-advised funds are have names like the Bill and Wendy mm-hmm. Smith sure. fund, or even now some t- people are calling it the Bill and Wendy Smith Foundation, even though it's a fund in a DAF, <laughs> but getting that designation. And and you could see that as the when the check is uh, sent to the charity, like the, this was an advised gift from you know the Bill and Wendy Smith Foundation fund <laughs> of you know whatever whatever the actual um, charity was, uh, and and we certainly have seen those uh, people in the nonprofit sector where you get those checks in saying you may you know uh, thank these people and wish to recognize them, but please don't issue them a tax. Uh, um, uh, deduction certificate or whatever. I'm, I'm losing the word for that um, uh, gift acknowledgement. The donor recognition. Yeah, that letter that we do every January, like here's you know your taxable contribution or tax deductible contribution to this organization. It is, of course, already been tax deducted by the time you get it. They, that You do not need to send them their donor um, acknowledgement that they gave to a thing because that's been done. So we get that letter saying you got a gift from such and such. Here's the check. 
got a, uh, a gift from an anonymous source uh, or an advisement from an anonymous source. Uh, you know, here's your gift. Thanks very much. And uh, uh, we don't know who to thank. We don't know how to engage with them. So, okay, there, there was a gift and we may never see another one again. Maybe we see the same one next year. There's just no knowing. Um, so I, I think as we're starting to run a little low on time, I want to kind of wrap back to th that um, what can we be doing to try and meet people that have chosen to give this way? I think it's different to say if you're working with a donor who is trying to think about the best way to give and they know there's a donor advised fund option that you could say, here's a tool, here's how it works. Here's some places you can go. Absolutely, we can help people understand that's an option. But for people that have decided that they wanted to give that way, how do we continue to try and break down that wall and figure out how to, how to meet people that have made that decision? There's a couple of things folks can do. Uh, if you are a grant writer and have a relationship with a community foundation uh, through a community grant making process, what we've learned through the working group is that often there are kind of two different um, teams within a community foundation. Those who make are on the community grant making side where there's more of an open application competitive process. And then there's the philanthropic services side. So those are the folks who are going to be working with the individuals and in communities giving philanthropically and setting up donor advised funds and doing general um, kind of charitable wealth planning. Often there's conversations and information sharing between the two teams. So the philanthropic services team and the community grants team within the community foundation will share information with one another mm -hmm. uh, and encourage um, if, they, if the philanthropic services team is working with a donor who has a passion about arts organizations and the community grants team knows about great orgs, they'll share that information. So as a grant writer, um, it's always a helpful question if you're um, having those conversations to just ask, uh, how are the ways in which you two work together and would it be possible to share your information about our organization with your donors? Um, if you are also working with um, individual giving fundraisers within your organization, I guess there's an opportunity to partner more proactively in your work. So um, beginning to ask some of those questions in donor site visits conversations. If you have a website, there's a button called DAF Direct that you can install. So for donors who are giving charitably to your organization, um, there's usually an option to do like a credit card form or an address to pay, send a check to. Um, you can also install this button that then is directly connect to, connected to a number of the largest national sponsors of DAF. So then payments would come directly out of their accounts there. There's also, I guess as a last resource, um, an online searchable database called NOSA Search. And in that, um, kind of how the, the data has been aggregated is it's um, scraped information from countless uh, annual reports from mm. different community foundations. So um, they have information about these named funds. Um, you can't know exactly who the people are or the address or necessarily the grants that have been paid out, but you could learn um, because this nonprofit organization received, reported in their annual report, a gift of between twenty-five and fifty thousand dollars from the Wendy and John Smith Fund mm -hmm. that will now be exported as a, a result within this database. So Noza N O Z A Search dot com. And is that a, a subscriber fee service? The Noza Search. Yeah, okay. it's a freemium model. So um, oh, okay. you can access a certain number of kind of records and reports under a free account, and then all the way up to kind of more robust reporting with paid.
Yeah, but that's good to know that you can kind of try it, see, you know, does that provide some information that might be useful? And if so, um, then maybe it's worth the investment to become a, a paid subscriber to a service like that to learn how to meet more folks. Um, that's Those are really helpful suggestions, Kari. I appreciate that as kind of where we are today. So as we're getting ready to wrap up, I'd, I'd love to hear from both of you of, you know, where do we go from here? Um, you've talked a little bit about um, becoming involved in the policy or the legislation end of do these tools work for us in the way that they're intended? And if not, what do we do about that? So how do people keep informed, get involved if they're interested in learning more? Well, a little bit more on the California legislation. So they saw it as a kind of a two-step process. First, they wanted to require uh, DAF funds, and they would have a threshold, say $4 million. But any DAF fund over $4 million, uh, the sponsors would have to report fund by fund how much money was being paid out. Oh, so this Not was, necessarily to whom, but at least that there was a payout yes, happening. Okay. Yeah. And that this would give them enough information to know, uh, is there a case for having a spend-down requirement? Mm -hmm. So, and then other legislative ideas, there's a concern that uh, private foundations should not use DAFs to meet their own 5% payout requirement, oh, uh, yeah. sort of parking money uh, in other locations. Uh, there's a concern that private foundations should not be allowed to uh, use DAFs to support groups that then meet the public support test. So this was right. kind of the Matthew Whitaker problem uh, of sort of in both these cases are sort of avoiding regulations that currently exist. And then the last one is to is there going to be interest in having an overall spend down requirement uh, of that sort of five to seven year range. And those would be federal? That would be federal. Okay. Uh, and so the number of law professors are in discussions. There's interest. Uh, Senator Charles Grassley, uh, Senate Finance Committee, has been very interested in DAF regulation, has uh, been involved in sort of writing some of the current rules. And then there's some uh, pending rules now uh, from the Treasury Department that will sort of increase requirements for DAFs. So stay engaged with the Minnesota Council of Nonprofits in this particular work. What is the easiest way to keep in touch? I think Kari would be a great contact. <laughs> where we also have just hired a public policy director, Marie Ellis, uh, who's going to be joining us in June. And okay. this will be one of her issues that she's tracking. Kari, do you have anything on that? Yeah. So one of the kind of goals of the working group was to increase public awareness and understanding of donor advised funds. And uh, as our kind of group has wound down meeting, there's been conversations about what types of products or information um, can we come up with together as a group to make this more broadly accessible. So we've talked about um, producing kind of an e-resource guide or some sort of Minnesota-specific uh, annual report that's um, kind of mirrors what the National Philanthropic Trust is able to do and produce for research on a national level, but um, we could produce that on a state level. So stay tuned. Yeah. And I, I think that I originally read the blog post as a subscriber at Grant Advisor. So if you're not um, subscribed to the newsletters or other social channels from Grant Advisor, do that. Uh, is it grantadvisor.org? Is that mm -hmm. the um, um, web address? Um, to keep in touch as more of these resources become available and to see what you might be able to do to have conversations not only with foundation people and, and givers, but also those policymakers to be aware that uh, um, while, again, we're all 
all in the goal of more charitable giving, um, doing it in ways that we feel are, are responsible to the public and transparent are, are ways we all want to uh, move forward with. So so glad to have had this conversation with both of you. Uh, John Pratt, Kari Anasad, both of the Minnesota Council of Nonprofits, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, Steve.